If I look funny to anybody this morning, I uh, did something to my neck. And so I'm, I'm sitting there before service, and it just feels like it's getting, you know, tighter and tighter. So if I'm, you know, if I'm moving like this to look around the room, apparently I really pushed it this week. I think it happened while I was sleeping. I don't know what was going on, but I woke up and here I am. Imagine two sets of bookshelves. On the left side, imagine 39 books, and on the right side, you've got 27 books. And together, these two sets of shelves make up the 66 books of your Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And then I want you to picture at the very bottom, on the left side, these 12 little books. And they're covered in dust. They are the, the least read books in the entire collection. And these are the minor prophets. One preacher, when he was beginning a series on these books, he started his first sermon by asking his congregation to open their Bibles to the clean pages. (laughs) His point, right, his point was that these last 12 books of the Old Testament They're some of the least trafficked books in the church today. They're some of the cleanest pages in my Bible also. You probably know this, but one part of your Bible is not more important than another part of your Bible. It's all really important. It all is the inspired Word of God. So it all is exactly what God wants us to have as His self-revelation. This is basically what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He said, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture has been breathed out by God, and it is all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So because these pages are so clean, we're going to study them together, but we're going to study them in a way that we typically do not study books of the Bible. And so I want to give you some warning here today. We're not going to go through these 12 books verse by verse. These prophets, you're going to see that they do not write in a logical and linear progression. And so it is extremely difficult actually impossible to really outline and to preach through each of these books of these minor prophets. Think of them, this is how Al Fuhr puts it in his book about the minor prophets, think of them as a literary collage. Think of each of these books as a literary collage representing, in some cases, decades of prophetic ministry. And so rather than go verse by verse, I'm going to preach overview sermons on these books. Some of them we will knock out in one Sunday, and others are going to take several weeks. My hope in doing it that way is that we will grasp the messages of each prophet and then understand how their overall message fits together collectively. 
So that's our goal for the entire sermon series. And we'll get started today with just an introduction to these prophets, who they were, and what their message was. Let's begin with prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to the sermon, would you please fill our minds with truth, and will you fill our hearts with affection, and will you move our wills to love you and to love others more? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We won't get there for a while. We'll get there in the second half of the sermon. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find Deuteronomy 28 on page 158. This morning's sermon is intended to be an introduction to the series. So we'll get to the first of the minor prophets, Hosea, in a couple weeks. What you have with these 12 books at the end of the Old Testament are individual messages that fit into a larger message that fit into an even larger message. Let me say that again. What you have with these 12 books are individual messages. Each one of these prophets has a message. And you have these individual messages that fit into a larger message. And that larger message really is the collective message of all these minor prophets. By the time Jesus was born... Uh, In fact, by 200 B.C., all 12 of these minor prophets, they were written down onto one scroll. So there were 12 books that were seen as one book and one collective message. In fact, they knew them as the book of the 12. That's the title of the series. So... There are individual messages that fit into one larger message of the book of the twelve, and that fits into a larger message, and that larger message is Genesis to Revelation. It is the message of the entire Bible. And before we move forward in the series, I think we need to understand where we are in God's story. So... Here is what I would like to do this morning. By way of introduction, there will be two parts. Two parts to this sermon. In part one, we're going to zoom all the way out, and I am going to attempt to summarize the message of the entire Bible. It's not going to take hours. I'm going to make an attempt at this to summarize the message of the entire Bible zoomed all the way out. Then in part two, we're going to zoom in on the book of the 12. This collection of 12 books at the very end of the Old Testament, and I will summarize the message of the minor prophets. Then I think we're ready in weeks to come to look at the individual messages of the minor prophets, keeping in mind how their messages fit into one message that fits into a greater message, which is the message of Scripture. So let's get into part one. What is the message of the whole Bible? What is the Bible about? Is it, I learned this when I was a kid, basic instructions before leaving earth? There was a period of my life that I actually thought the word Bible was an acronym. (laughs) Is that what this is? Is this basic instructions before leaving earth? There's certainly some instructions in here, but that does not summarize what the Bible is about. It is not... A, a collection of disconnected ancient writings. The Bible, 
Though it's written by over 40 authors and over a period of at least 1,500 years, it was ultimately written by, inspired by God, and it tells one story. Which for me has always been the biggest proof of the authenticity of the Bible as God's Word. I mean, how do you get over 40 different authors writing over 1,500 years to write a cohesive story such that you can't remove one of those books without the story being told? I really like the way B.B. Warfield described this biblical unity. He wrote, No less than 66 separate books, one of which consists itself of 150 separate compositions, immediately stare us in the face. These treatises come from the hands of at least 30 distinct writers, scattered over a period of some 1,500 years, and embrace specimens of nearly every kind of writing known among men. Histories, codes of law, ethical maxims, philosophical treatises, discourses, dramas, songs, hymns, epics, biographies, letters both official and personal, prophecies. Their writers, too, were of like diverse kinds. The time of their labors stretches from the ancient past of Egypt to and beyond the bright splendor of Rome under Augustus. We may look, however, on a still greater wonder. Let us once penetrate beneath all this primal diversity and observe the internal character of the volume and a most striking unity is found to pervade the whole. The parts are so linked together that the absence of any one book would introduce confusion and disorder. The same doctrine is taught from beginning to end. So 66 books and one unified message. One unified story. What is it? Well, here's a way that I have heard it summarized. I've found it very helpful. And that is to identify in the Bible these four sequential chapters that tell the story. And those four sequential chapters would be creation and fall and redemption and restoration. Creation and then fall and then redemption and then restoration. You could say these are the four major events in Scripture. So let's look at each of them. First, creation. Your Bible begins with the words, in the beginning. And God created there something we're told from nothing. God created the sun and the stars and land and sea and then life. And the pinnacle of God's creation was man, the very first human being created with a perfect vision of God, a perfect understanding of God, created with a reflecting a perfect image of God, Adam in the garden reflecting a perfect image of God, and in perfect fellowship with God to live in a perfect garden of Eden. It was perfect. God called it good. No sin, no evil, no suffering, no sorrow. And that is the first two chapters of the Bible. Well, look around. Something has happened. Because those first two chapters describing 
paradise and perfection. Man with a perfect vision of God, reflecting God's image perfectly, in perfect communion and fellowship with God. We all know, looking around, that is not the case anymore. Which brings us to the second chapter in the story, which is the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about this next major event in human history. Those first human beings, Adam and Eve, they were tempted by Satan to disbelieve and then disobey God. And sadly, they did. They disbelieved God and they disobeyed Him. Or they sinned. They sinned in the garden. Obscuring their vision of God. And marring the image of God and ruining their fellowship with God. And their sin was not isolated. Its effects were not isolated. As Adam was in the garden, we're told, as a representative of you and of me. He was there as a head of humanity. And he represented the entire human race. And so every person born after, including you and including me, was born with a sinful nature. A hard heart that says no to God. I was born, you were born with a hard heart, a stony heart that says no to God. This is a very long chapter in your Bible. This chapter of the fall and its consequences. You have or you could read the entire Old Testament from Genesis 3 on. And it tells a story, doesn't it? It tells a story of people who are in rebellion against God. It starts off with Adam and Eve's kids. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. It gets worse and worse. The people spiral downward to the point where in Genesis 6 through 9, God destroyed the entire world by flood, saving only Noah and his family. A lot of people think that God saved Noah because he was a good guy. But he really wasn't. Read those pages in Genesis. Noah committed some horrible sins. And his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids, they were no different. By Genesis chapter 11... People are actually uniting to build a monument to their own greatness. And God came and he judged them. He confused their language and dispersed them all over the face of the earth. We keep reading and we find Abraham in Genesis 12. And God gives him a grandson named Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. His children ended up enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt where they grow to two million people. Then we read about God sending Moses to dramatically rescue them out of captivity. And now they're wandering around in the wilderness where God gives them his law. He establishes them as a nation and he ultimately leads them to a home that he had promised them. There in that home, he eventually gives them the kings that they cried out for. He gives them King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. After Solomon died, Rehoboam took over, 
and the kingdom of Israel, for the first time, divided into two kingdoms. The north, which was typically called Israel, and the south, which was typically called Judah. Things didn't go well in the northern kingdom. Idolatry grew and grew until the Assyrians destroyed them in 722 B.C. And it didn't go any better for those in the south, for those of Judah. They spiritually deteriorated as well until they were destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. Many of them were led into exile into Babylon. You know, Daniel was one of them. They were there for about 70 years. And then, under Persian rule, a remnant, a part of God's people, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and then the temple that had been destroyed. We read about that in the books of Ezra. And Nehemiah. And that succinctly summarizes the history, that is the history that we find in the Old Testament. It is a story, in part, of a people who first rebelled against God in the garden and continued to rebel against God for generation upon generation. On generation, which had them in terrible standing before God. Because God is a good God. And if God is anything, He is holy and He is just. And so God must deal with sin. God must bring justice to bear. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but... Do you know the rest? But who will by no means clear the guilty? So the problem for all these people, every last one of them whose history we read throughout the Old Testament, is that they're all guilty. Ever since Adam. They all have sinned against God. They all have said no to God. They all have gone their own way. They all stand before God guilty. And God said in His Word, in His law that He gave to them in the wilderness, listen, God will by no means, He will never, ever, 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 ever just clear the guilty. And so this is, of course, ringing in the ears of God's people. And God told them things to do, and He gave them a sacrificial system, and He told them ways that they could temporarily appease God's wrath and God's anger. But at the end of the day, they were all still sinful. Guilty before God. So the Old Testament it does tell a story of the people's rebellion against God. And it is a story of a patient God. Notice he doesn't make an end of them. When you go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when you read what God told Adam that he would do if Adam disobeyed and sinned against God, then when you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you read what Adam did, you're expecting the Bible to end at that point. Because God said, if you do this one thing that I'm telling you not to do, because it's representative of turning your back on me, not submitting to me, and going your own way. We've got perfect fellowship, but don't you forget who is in authority. And he told Adam, if you do that, 
Do you remember? You will surely die. And here we are reading the entire Old Testament. Not only did Adam not die, eventually he did. But look at all of these other people who are born, who are living, who are rebelling against God, who are turning their backs on God, and yet God never makes an end of them. He is patient with them. Not only is He patient with them, but He makes these wonderful promises to them. In fact, the first time he makes the promise is all the way back in that ugliest of chapters. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Where we're expecting God to just blot out human beings. And God speaking says to Satan actually, I will put enmity, that is war, I will put war between you and the woman. This is Eve whom he had just tempted into sin in the garden. I'll put war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he's talking there about one very specific offspring. There will be a child. And there will be war between you, Satan, and this child. And here's how that war is going to go. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus where Satan was crushed. But it's this obscure promise in Genesis chapter 3. And then you read throughout the Old Testament and it gets more and more clear. And the light gets brighter and brighter. God makes promises to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to David. He promises that He will save His people from Satan, sin, and death. So as Mark Dever is fond of putting it, in the Old Testament, promises are made. In the New Testament, those promises are kept. And that's a great way to think about those two sets of shelves. The Old Testament, all these promises are made. And in the New Testament, we read about God coming through on every single one of them, coming through on His Word and keeping His great and precious promises. Which brings us to the next great chapter, which is redemption. And that's where the New Testament begins. In the New Testament, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What are those four books? They are accounts written by four different men, but they are telling you the story of Jesus. This Messiah King that was promised in the Old Testament This suffering servant that was promised in the Old Testament, here he is. He has finally come. And so each of them gives us the account of the the birth of Jesus, the life, his death, and his resurrection. The good news that Jesus did. He came, he lived, he suffered, he died. He rose from the dead in the place of sinners. All these sinners going all the way back to Adam. Maybe including you. He came, lived, suffered, and died in the place of His people. Living that life that they were supposed to live. That Adam was supposed to live in the garden. That you are supposed to live today. Living a perfect life. Not deserving the judgment that you and I deserve, yet willingly being judged by God in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. So that we could be cleansed of our sin. So that we could have fellowship again with God. 
so that he could begin to restore that image in us. So that our vision of God, our understanding of God could begin to be clarified. In the book of Acts, Jesus has been resurrected, ascended to heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit as His very presence in His people. He begins to work through His people and to establish the first church. And that is what we have in the Acts of the Apostles. Then we have many letters in the rest of your New Testament written by Paul and others to one another that gives us further insight into who God is and who we are as Christians. And that is where we live, by the way. In terms of these chapters, we are between redemption and restoration. We are somewhere in there. Restoration is the last chapter. That is what is still to come, which is in the beginnings but is still to come to its consummation. And that's what we find in the book of Revelation. There we ultimately read about how God is going to restore paradise. Take the first two chapters of your Bible and the last two chapters of your Bible. The bookends of the story. And it is paradise, paradise lost, paradise restored. How the story ends, we're told, with God and His people in the new heavens and the new earth. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're in this story. And here's the heart of the story. This is according to Gordon Fee. A loving Redeeming God in His incarnation restored our lost vision of God. Took off the wraps, as it were, so that we could plainly see what God is truly like. By His crucifixion and resurrection made possible our being restored to the image of God and through the gift of the Spirit became present with us in constant fellowship with God. So that is, in a nutshell, that is the message of the entire Bible. That is the whole story from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. Now, with that in mind, where and how do the minor prophets fit into this great story? Well, in the Old Testament, there are major and minor prophets. There are 17 books of prophetic writings, and 12 of them, Augustine coined the phrase in the 5th century, are known as the minor prophets. Again, by 200 B.C., all of them were collected into one book known to the Jews as the Book of the Twelve. They were not called minor because they were less significant than the major prophets, so don't think baseball. They were called minor because the books are shorter. In fact, if you compiled all 12 of those minor prophets, they're about the size of one of the major prophetic books. One commentator writes, The prophets, well, they were charged with waking God's people out of their spiritual stupor. And we're going to see that. Their words were like a bucket of ice water poured over a bleary-eyed people. For all their eccentricity, the prophets were artistic geniuses crafting their words to maximize the effectiveness of their message. So here's the deal. The prophets, they were preachers. That is what they were. These prophets, they were preachers. And they are preaching. Remember that history that we just went over. They are preaching to the divided kingdom. Remember, God's kingdom was united under Saul and David and Solomon, and then the kingdom splits. Each of those kingdoms degenerates. They're in outright rebellion against God. Soon, they're going to come under conquest from Assyria and Babylon. 
These preachers are preaching to these people during that time. So, to a once united nation, now divided and predominantly in rebellion against God, these prophets preached. Now, if you missed the relevance of their message to us today, I'm just going to say that sentence one more time. To a once united nation, now divided and predominantly in rebellion against God, these prophets preached. Now, we're not the divided kingdom of Israel. And so we'll need to understand as we go what the prophets were saying to them before we draw any sort of connection to how it applies to us. But you see, I hope, the relevance. And these preachers came along and they were pouring this cold ice water on God's people. I bet they're going to do the same thing to us. They had three distinct messages. And this is how I'll conclude this sermon. And this will prepare us to study them in the months to come. There were three distinct messages that these 12 minor prophets preached. Number one, God is sovereign. Here God's people were, they were, for the most part, under terrible circumstances. A lot of trial, a lot of difficulty. Imagine families being split up. Imagine your home being destroyed. Imagine being hauled off into prison. I mean, this for most of us is much more serious than anything that we've endured. So these were extremely difficult circumstances. And one of the messages of the prophets to God's people is that these difficult circumstances are the result of God's decree. Now also their sin, and there was personal responsibility, and this was the judgment of God, and there were things that they had done that got them to the place where they were. But, God makes very clear to them through these prophets that God is sovereign as they look to try and make sense of the world around them. As they look to try and understand how they could face these challenges that were before them, they needed to understand through these great preachers that God is sovereign. Sovereign. They went so far, God did through these prophets, to call Nebuchadnezzar, who was the one who destroyed Babylon and hauled off many, including Daniel, into exile. And Nebuchadnezzar is described by God as his servant. What a thing to say. Imagine some leader today or in the past that you despise and is doing things that you disagree with and doing things that you are frustrated about. Probably nothing like this, though in history we could certainly find examples like this. And then imagine hearing from God that so-and-so was His servant. Accomplishing His will. Or Cyrus of Persia, who is called by God his anointed one, his shepherd, and so many other texts, and we're going to see them. What was the point that God was making through these prophets? God is in control, God is sovereign. 
in that sense, you're exactly where God means for you to be. God is in control, which means that they needed, just like we do, to trust God. To trust Him. The second message, so clear, and this is where we get to that text on the front of your bulletin. God is holy. Number one, God is sovereign. God is holy. This is why there is such a sharp denunciation of sin from the prophets. It is this, who do you think you are? Dishonoring God like this. Who do you think you are neglecting God like this? Who do you think you are to partner yourself with the world and go against God? And so what they will do through their messages is go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Say, God told you this was going to happen. Take holiness seriously. Honor God. The end of the letter we just studied from Paul. Honor the King. You have been created by God to love Him and to worship Him. So what did God say back in Deuteronomy 28? If, to His people, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out if you faithfully obey the Lord your God. But then a few verses later, God said this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these, not blessings, curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And so these prophets, these preachers, were preaching to God's people, these chosen people who largely were not obeying the word of the Lord. And they were saying, do you remember the law? Do you remember Deuteronomy 28? Yes, God is patient. But is there no end to His patience? Will this not be fulfilled at some point? And so their message was, God is holy. Therefore, Repent. If God is sovereign and it leads us to trust God, our understanding of God's holiness, this is what leads us every day, right, Christians? To repent. And the prophetic message to Israel during these 300 years of utter rebellion was that they must repent and turn to God. And it's very interesting, and we'll see this, while they were under all this pressure and while they were under all this oppression and the solution the prophets gave, it was never a political solution. It was never a military solution. It was you must repent and turn to God. That was the starting point. They must repent and turn to God. 
James Montgomery Boyce, when he preached through the minor prophets, understanding these messages that they bring, he said, we need these emphases today. We need them as individuals for we sin and we run away from God just as Israel did. We need them as a nation also. For God will not deal with America or Britain or any other contemporary nation differently in regards to its sin than He dealt with the nations of antiquity. We need to learn deeply and in a way that changes us that and he quotes Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So three messages. God is sovereign, God is holy, and then finally there is this clear message to that divided kingdom, and that was God loves you. God loves you. If God's sovereignty helps us to trust God, if God's holiness prompts us to repent, then it is God's love that gives us hope. This is what gives us hope. If God doesn't love us, we're finished. If God isn't for us, but He's against us, we're finished. If the things we do can separate us from God, then we are finished. But God loves His people. God had been patient with Israel. He had given them promises. He would soon bring to them, and He has for us, the Messiah. But listen to just a couple places. These are from Zechariah. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. They spoke with poetry and they spoke with vibrant imagery seeking to get across the points that they had and one of them was God loves you there is hope for you Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 10 rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, for us, this promised Messiah has come, and this peace has been initiated. And we will see it through. So the message of these minor prophets, God is sovereign. God is holy. And God loves you. We as God's people today understand that God is sovereign. And so we trust Him. We understand that God is holy. And so we put off sin and we turn from sin and we turn to Him. We understand that God is love, that God loves us and has loved us greatly in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we believe in Him. And we trust Him. And we live for Him. I pray that God will take the words of these prophets and that He'll bless us in the months to come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love You.
And you have been so patient with me. And you have been so patient with us. You have been so patient with us as a nation. God, you would have been justified to make an end of me. You would have been justified to make an end of this nation. God, you are so gracious and kind. And God, I know that I could use uh, some hard words. And I bet that there are many here today that could use some hard words. And so we pray that in the weeks and months to come, that you would help us by your Spirit to understand the message that you had for your people, Israel. And then, God, would you help us to consider what that means for us today and help us to know what we should do about it. Make it clear, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, every Sunday following every sermon, we worship God by taking communion together. And so take out your communion packet, and I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's proclaim the Lord's death together today. If you are a Christian, then you are welcome to take communion with us. And by that, I mean that you have understood and believed the good news of the gospel, that you have turned from your sin and you have placed your trust in Christ alone, that you have committed yourself to him and, of course, to his people, whether you're committed to this church or another church that preaches the same gospel, but you're welcome to take communion with us. So let's take this bread, which is a symbol of the body of Christ, and let's take and eat this together. And then let's take this cup, which is a symbol of the blood of Christ, and let's take and drink this together. Will you please stand again with me?